Welcome to Security All In. My name is Red Curry, and I'll be guest hosting today's episode with your regular host, Sam Curry, Chief Security Officer at Cyber Reason. It's really a fun opportunity for me and an honor to be guest hosting an interview with my bro, my best friend, and my mentor. He's the reason I got into cybersecurity, into this industry. But that's a story for another day. As many of you have heard in previous podcasts, the purpose is to find out when someone went all in on security or when security went all in on them. This is Sam's day, so get ready and buckle up, Sammy. Without further delay, I'd like to introduce my brother, Sam, to the podcast. Welcome, Sam. Hey, Red, good to be here, and a little strange to be in this seat for a change. I know, and get ready. So let's just dig right into this. Your passion for security is no secret. Your dedication to the mission of security, the world we live in, and securing that world today is felt in everything that you write and you speak publicly about. People can see that from all the likes I uh, give to all your posts. I don't want to start there necessarily. As I've listened to Security All In, I like where you usually begin. Talking about where you first met a guest. So let's start there. Where I met my big bro. It's a memory that's a little fuzzy for me. And I know there's a funny story there too, Sammy. Why don't you tell that one for me? Yes, the audience might not know this, but I'm five and a half years older than you. I remember the day you were born very, very clearly. Our grandmother, whose, well, her generation, uh, her parents died quite young, and she was very close with her siblings. So she made a point as mom got progressively more pregnant, if that's a thing, she made a point of telling me that that siblings mattered more than anything, and that ultimately they'd be the only people we would have. And she said, you got to protect him, you got to protect him, you got to protect him. Now, I had made a request for a baby, and, or rather, I should say for a brother, and I did not realize they came out small. I mean, I was five years old, right? So I was expecting someone to walk out and play soccer with me. And I remember we went to the hospital. You were born in Gibraltar because mom didn't trust the nurses where we lived in North Africa. Doctors were excellent. The nurses, not so hot. So you were born in the Royal Naval Hospital in Gibraltar. And um, they wheeled you out. And actually, you were born with a call on your head. You had, uh, that's the placenta, forms a cap. And you were born in a naval hospital. And among sailors, especially in the British Navy, that is... Um, you can't die at sea. And so it was considered an incredible good fortune. And, and so far you haven't died at sea, Red, so that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember passing out because I had turned up, I had a stuffed elephant to give you. And I think all the stories that grandma told me hit me. And I think I thought I was a dad at that moment because out came a baby, not like someone who could play soccer with me. Yeah, so that's when I met you, uh, 1978. Yeah, and you've been taking care of me ever since. I have to say, you've been a great big bro and still are. I mean, you've been doing my homework for me. We did travel a lot, right? I mean, if you go back <laughs> yeah, to our did. time, like I'm born in Gibraltar. We lived in Morocco. We've lived all over the world, right? We've, the mm-hmm. travel that we did. Tell me some of the things you take away from our travels around the world, things that might have inspired you, valuable lessons oh, along the way, people, food, your languages and the arts. Well, food, of course. And it's no secret that I like good food. And your name's Red Curry. So like, I have to <laughs> apologize for that. Mom and dad said, you know, what should we call him? And, and there was a guy named Redverse way back in our family history. And I'm like, that's the name. So that's R-E-D-V-E-R-S for those who want to torture you. And it, we didn't realize it would be abbreviated Red, which we should have realized. And so now you can't get a, a restaurant like an Indian or a Thai restaurant. But traveling around the world, I've always felt like a citizen of the world first. I mean, I was born in Canada. We had parents who were British. I grew up speaking at least four languages as a child, Arabic, Spanish, French, and English, and then added more Greek and Latin later, and then 
many more languages. So I don't know, I feel like I'm at home everywhere and nowhere is home, although I'm firmly an American now, and this is definitely my home. I always feel comfortable when I'm with pretty much anyone, anywhere. And I know people don't always have that sense when they travel, but I just feel like the sooner I connect with people and, and go somewhere local and eat something and hang out with folks, I do feel a connection and I can't help it. But you know, except for when I was in high school, we moved every three years for my entire life until Kathleen, my wife and I, until we, uh, we got our current place. And uh, Red Curry, I owe you one for that one, I'll tell you. You do, you do. So maybe you can just tell us about that time you were riding a trike at the bottom of the <laughs> pool. I mean, it just, it's a testament to your determination, never ending, uh, uh, then too, up, right? Yeah, yeah. So when we first moved to Morocco, I was, what, three years old? It was before you were around. So you only heard this as like legends, right? That's and, right. <laughs> uh, we lived six months in the Hilton, until we found a place and we moved, we moved, I still remember the, the address, but we moved into a house and we lived there for nearly three, four years. But for that six months, I didn't have many places to go. I, I'd ride, I had a trike and I would, I would ride it around up and down the halls of the hotel in Rabat and around the pool. And on one occasion I goofed and I rode into the pool and um, I believe it was the King's brother-in-law dove in and saved me. And he told mom that I was still pedaling on the bottom because <laughs> I guess I didn't realize that this was more than just a change of medium, that like, I'd have to actually find the stairs out. But yeah, so that's what happened. I love that story. And it makes me think about just that determination, that passion. And in the beginning- I'm still pedaling. That's the thing. Yeah, exactly. You keep on pedaling, keep pushing forward, right? In the beginning, I mentioned a little bit your passion for reading, knowledge, and writing. I've talked about that with you lots and lots. And as you know, and I think you are a master storyteller. Our whole lives together always loved the way you could craft a good story. Where did that begin? Oh, what drove that passion? And where did reading and knowledge seeking and writing really take hold for you? Well, you know, we didn't have the easiest time when we were kids. And at first I didn't take to reading. It, it came to me quite late in childhood. And then I, I took to it like a fish to water. But I think the fact that one of my degrees is a lit degree helped. We had the gift of gab in our family. We could, we could talk the hind legs off a horse. And our humor, <laughs> I hope it comes through on this podcast at some point, but we do nothing but laugh in the family, like you, me, and, and our other brother, Ben, when we're together. Ben is the youngest of the three of us um, <laughs> who's listening. All we do is laugh, right? And we have a, a few habits, like I think it's just in our DNA to, to protect people and to try to help them be their, their best selves generally. And we're, we have that Canadian mentality of, of extreme egalitarianism in some ways. But for me, I had a teacher. I had two teachers in grade nine or ninth grade, as they, as they say here. I had a, a teacher and she got me out of my shell. And I remember dad helped me write my first real paper. And having seen, and my first story, like he did too much to help me. But he said, I'm going to show you how to do it once. And he goes, and then I want you to stick to it. And I did. And, and Miss Edson, sorry, my ninth grade English teacher, she saw this in me and was merciless and she was so witty and so quick and she was a complete beast honestly like she was cruel but when i got my first a i didn't want to not get an a for her i didn't care about my other courses except physics and that was just out of uh, stubbornness and pride and computer science was a joke because it was easy right and yeah. i remember taking a shine to writing and then when i did my lit degree because i, I did physics and then lit when i did my lit degree i had a professor dr coughlin and he told me 
something crucial. He said, the point of writing is not to be right. It's not to put out something perfect. It's, it's about messiness. It's about imperfection. You put something out there to have debate. And without that, we don't have democracy. He says it's one of the most critical things. Freedom of speech is actually a responsibility of speech. And then later in life, I guess I got to realize that everything is stories. Marketing is stories, Red, right? Like engineering is stories. We talk about now, you know, we, we literally talk in engineering about writing stories. It is about narratives. And as human beings, we, we look back on lives. I guess Security All In does this a bit. You look back and you say, someone says, how'd you get here? And you tell a narrative. That's completely artificial. Let's face it. No one did the Babe Ruth, that's where the ball's going, and then hit it there. You look back and you tell a structure to teach something in the moment, and we, we gravitate to them. We need stories. So for me, the art of storytelling and the ability to invent narratives is huge. And of course, I, I, I have a suspicion I know where this is going. That's every part of my life, really. Right? right. So you mentioned the lit degree. Do you think in a parallel universe you might have been a writer? Oh, my goodness, yeah. So I think there's probably a parallel universe I mean, I wanted to be an astronaut as a kid, and then I realized that the odds were really bad. So I figured my fallback will be writing sci-fi novels, right? And I thought, hey, so that's really why physics and lit, right? And um, it's still my passion. Telling stories and creating them, improv in some cases, I adore. And, you know, a lot of security is telling stories. It's what's the potential bad story here? Or what's the path of the good story through the mess? I think there's also... There's probably an alternate universe where I'm an author, and there's probably one where we turned to the dark side and became a gang. Yeah. Um, you know, but, uh, and we've talked about that before. You and I have talked about that. I think if we listened to our youngest brother, we might have done that more, but um, that's a joke. I think it's in my DNA to try to combine these things, and um, it is all about narratives. I still hope to write a book one day. I think everyone's got like the great American novel, 90 pages done somewhere in their mind or in their desk, but I do hope to actually do that. I'm going to have you write it for me, though. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, absolutely. Um, so sci-fi, Sam, I know you love sci-fi. And I know that's, that's a one thing. of your favorite that's genres. A thing. Yeah. Did that lead you in somewhat to where you are, even as a thought leader, always telling me to imagine the possibilities and what the future can be? Yeah. Yes, it did. And by the way, I can't wait for Dune later this year, the movie. Uh, hoping Denny Villeneuve still does it, even, even with a pandemic situation. It absolutely did. The... Isaac Asimov once got really upset when someone said that you could never have a sci-fi mystery, he said. Uh, and he said, why? And, and I forget who said this, but whoever it was was clearly denigrating of genre fiction. And he said, this person then told uh, Isaac Asimov said, you know, because you could make anything up. You could say, oh, well, because of this secret ability or power, you know, just throw the laser gun, you know, off the cliff and it blows up or whatever that there's something that happens and, and you could just make it up. And, he, and Isaac Asimov came back with something really important and it was later built on by Ursula K. Le Guin. Asimov said that everything should be internally consistent in a sci-fi story. Really great sci-fi changes very little. In fact, ultimately just one thing that's possible. It takes something that is not science today and makes it possible and then looks at the consequences for human existence and human condition. Some can take more, like you can have a few things, but like there's a difference between space opera as a subgenre and hard SF, which is everything should work according to the laws of nature. And he then went and wrote a bunch of, of mysteries set in sci-fi worlds where all the data is there for you to put together and solve the mystery. No getting out at the end by making something up. But what Ursula K. Le Guin added to this is, 
and I think this was in the preface to a book called The Left Hand of Darkness, which is a great read for folks, and read you'd love it. Um, oh, yeah. She said, sci-fi is really about now. It lets you step sideways to a world of what if and explore something. And in The Left Hand of Darkness, she talks about a world, by the way, where there's a visitor who's coming to a world where everybody is both genders. And then partway through the book, you realize it's not about a what if, it's about now told through a lens that lets you suspend your disbelief. And then it hits you. That's what happens with Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale, right? It's not just about an alternate world where women's rights are so terribly trampled. It's a story about now. And when you realize that, whether in, and a lot of people who've seen The Handmaid's Tale on TV, like they go, oh, this is, it does. And they think it's a political commentary on today. But actually, it's a political commentary no matter who's in, the, in power, right? And that is the really powerful message of the book. And I think to some degree, the TV show, which, which is exceptionally well done, too. So did, did that help? Did that answer it, Fred? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I want to shake things up a little bit and take it a whole other direction really quick. So I want to go back in time to when you and I are a little younger. And I remember Sam Curry, the rugby player. This was <laughs> a very special time for me and looking up to you. I remember cheering on the field. I remember being that kid running up and down the field, watching my brother play rugby, watching him take people out. Mm. But I also remember my brother as an early defender, somebody who couldn't take the bullies. And mm. I remember somebody once telling me to sit down and be quiet. And, and how do you know Sam? And, and I remember you coming to my aid as Sam off the rugby pitch to help his brother out. But I also remember just how really into rugby and, and sports in general that you were growing up. What was mm. that all about? Tell me a bit about your rugby days. I played hockey and I played soccer. I gravitated more to team sports than individual sports. But rugby for me is a game where, so if you play one game of rugby with someone, you are more close to them than you are in one game of anything else. There's something about getting inside someone's interpersonal space and struggling together. And a scrum will do that for you. And we always used to say you can lose the game to win the day. So you'd have a the match itself, and then you'd go drinking, and then you'd go singing. And that was three separate competitions. And so the soccer is often called an apologies to soccer players, because I, I do love my soccer or English football or whatever you want to call it. Matthew McKenna, if you're listening. Yeah, apologies, Matthew, who's another brother by another mother. But uh, they call it a, a, you know, a gentleman's sport for thugs. And rugby is really a thug sport for gentlemen, because you help each other up on the pitch. And you don't want more than two injuries, because then you're down people, and you tackle cleanly right? For all that it's a very violent game, it's not a very usually hurtful game, except under extreme conditions. And so rugby for me was digging deep. When I was at my peak, I was working out five or six hours a day. I was running before school, during lunch, and then two or three hours of practice after school every day. And in high school, right? And of course, in Canada, we were drinking over two. So it was burning the candle at both ends. But that let me excel at something a lot. And I just took it like a fish to water and competed at all levels in rugby. I regretted having to give it up too. And the only times dad came to see me, I was terrible, by the way. Like it was the games that I did my worst. And Isn't that always the case? <laughs> Mom was at every game, by the way. But dad, of course, had to travel a lot and work. So, And of course, we can't not mention him because he's a huge influence. He's probably one of the best computer scientists we've ever met or know of and has been doing oh, yeah. almost as long as there have been computers, but not quite. Yeah, so rugby was huge. Sports were a big deal. And I remember when when I moved back to Massachusetts to hang out with you and Ben uh, in 2007, we decided to go to the gym together. And I went 56 days in a row. Because when I get into it, 
I just don't stop. Anyway, I don't know. That's probably a bit of a tangent, but that, that's what came to mind. No, no. I mean, I love it. And it just shows leadership, the teamwork, all the things that kind of embody who you have been to me, taking care of me. Uh, I talked about the bullies growing up as a kid. You were an awesome oh, yeah. brother. But taking care of others, protecting others. This is something that I just remember you always instilling in me as a kid and then leading by example. I always was amazed at how you could do that. I know the answer to this. What is the significance of family in your life? Mm. It's funny. I think I define family bigger than just blood. I've always been amazed that saying blood is thicker than water is actually backwards. It's biblical, but it says the blood of an oath is thicker than the water of the womb. In other words, my family's constantly growing. Mom used to criticize me for this a bit, but, but I identify, maybe I have a high empathy, but I always want people to achieve their utmost. And I try to help them do that. And I'm really, like, I was always worried, Red, that I would be charting a course that would be super hard for you to follow. And so I wanted you to follow Yeah, thanks, buddy. Not, <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah, so you wound up in cyber. Yeah. I apologize. And to some extent, I wound up in computer science like dad, but I really wanted you to not be like, oh, yeah, so my brother was there five years before me. And so I tried not to do that too much, but I, I really try to help people achieve. I, know, I believe anyone can do anything they set their mind to, really. I really want them to, to be able to go where they want to go. I remember the day you got me into it. I believe I was working as a pet toy costume clothing and furniture designer. And I had well, been, let's let's be I clear had, about that. You had to airbrush genitals out of animal pictures <laughs> for, for advertising, and you had to put like human smiles on dogs because they love dog food and they, <laughs> and they look creepy with canines. Like so true. But I remember I, I told you I, I was a victim of the TJX breach, and I called right. you and I said, "Hey, what do you guys even do over in cybersecurity?" <laughs> and you go, "Hey, buddy, we could use all the help. Feel free to sign up, join, and help us out." I'll never forget that. That was a a great day. Uh, that was the day I had made that decision to follow you into it. So, and being a mentor, I tell you, like I couldn't, have asked, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better mentor. But if I think about it, I can still remember that energy you brought into those rugby games and what you bring in every day today. And I want to get into something real quick. I know the story of when you started the cyber journey. Maybe you could take the audience back to when it all began, sometime in the 90s. And I think I inherited a Ford Escort trial by fire driving a manual transmission. The all the all in part. So we're gonna we're gonna ignore the time when I was a bouncer way back. And when I, so when I went back for my lit degree, I then I called up a gentleman named Phil Atfield, who today is the CEO of a company called Sequitur Labs, who I'm on the board of. And his first job out of college was working for Dad, right? And so here I was finishing up. The let's just ignore. There was some security prior to that, but it wasn't a career. And I called him because his brother was a broker and an investment banker for TD Bank and was in particular looking at biotech. This is in mid-90s. And I was hoping he'd, he'd make an introduction to his brother and I'd be able to go to biotech as a tech writer, right? Hey, why not? I want to be an author in that parallel universe, right? And Phil and I spoke, and he and his wife Rita had come down to Boston and I'd done the come look at the Constitution and Bunker Hill, which isn't really where the battle happened and all that, you know, go to Concord. And so we, we hit it off. And of course, I had known him for years because he hung out with dad. And in that hour, hour and a half, he said, why don't you come work with me? And I remember, so my visa, I worked at Cadence at the time and they had messed up, uh, Cadence Design Systems, they had messed up my visa. Yeah. And I had, to, I had to move back to Canada because I wasn't a US citizen at that time. And um, he said, come. And I said, sure. So two suitcases and 90 bucks. And I flew to Ottawa and lived in his basement. And when I got there, it was flooded because there was a there was a thaw. This would have been like 96. 
it was a cold time of year, so it's not nice to have like three feet of water in the basement you're supposed to be sleeping in. And um, he was wonderful, but we founded a company and you know, the whole purpose of the company was um, to do symmetric key encryption. Uh, we said PKI doesn't cut it and asymmetric encryption is not good enough. And along the way, a gentleman named James Grant and I went to a show, it was a government show, and this guy said, I want to telecommute. And we're like, what's that? And he said, I want to work from home. I live like three hours out in the sticks and I don't want to have to come in during a blizzard or whatever. I like to just roll out of bed and connect to the network. And he worked for the government. So we're like, cool, we'll bring a VPN server, symmetric key VPN server, plunk it in your house. He goes, no, 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 no. I want to use Windows 95. And we're like, what? Why on earth would you do that? It's, it's yeah. Swiss cheese. And um, we walked away shaking our heads like that's so stupid. And then we talked. And we figured out what he wanted to do. And I remember by the following week, we had essentially come up with the first personal firewall. And um, it was a painful thing to use. And later iterations of it were easier to use and more automated. And that is what McAfee bought my company for at the end of the decade. And that's how I moved to Silicon Valley. And somewhere in there, I realized security was for me. It was a moment of, huh? Like, how did that happen? And um, I remember, it was almost, you know, that phrase, burn the bridges, right? Do you remember what happened before I moved to California? The night before I moved to California? The motorcycle accident? Well, no, that happened after when Ben and I went out on, on some bikes. And I remember I didn't want mom and dad to know, and I still went and saw Phantom Menace, which was a waste of time. Oh, yeah. That's another story. Uh, no, this was, um, my house burned down in all oh, Yeah, so I literally left Canada with, this time, 50 bucks, two suitcases, and two cats, because everything burned down. I was in a hotel the night before. The, the, the packers came and packed everything up in boxes, and I got a call from the landlord saying, your house is burning. And the movers were coming to get the boxes the next day. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and I moved to California. It was like, burned the bridges. And for me, mentally, you know, maybe I should back up and say, I had a bulletin board service at BBS with a guy named Driss Zuak in like 1991. And we used to sell computer car parts out of the back of a car and repair computers and things. And um, at the time, there were two names I knew in security, RSA and McAfee. And I remember I, I said to myself one day, I'm going to work for McAfee when I saw the free scanner, which was a brilliant way of distributing product in those days through bulletin boards. And I said, it was a command line thing. And I said, I want to work there one day. And then after that, I was doing my crypto in the early 90s, and I was like, I want to work for RSA one day, right? And here I was moving to California, working for one of the two companies I wanted to work for, which was heady. You know, I'm going to Silicon Valley. I am now a security guy. I have left behind what I've left behind, and the future was wide open. And then, by the way, later, of course, I did work at RSA, and now you work at RSA. So, yeah, but that itself is a different story. Oh, yeah. And a fun one, too. But I, I love how we just talked about a motorcycle accident and a house fire in one <laughs> conversation. And we brushed right over them both. So I'm also going to let everybody on here know, Sam, you can tell us about how you got hit by lightning as well, maybe? Yeah. I used to work with this woman named Janet Chandler at Signal 9, who, by the way, was a massive inspiration to me. And I hope she hears me say that. She's, she lives in, in Ontario still. And she looked at me one day and she said, you know, Sam, Fred, that's her husband and I, we believe there's a deity of cosmic proportions out to get you, but there's a deity who's just a little bigger out to save you. Because horrendous things happen <laughs> to you, but somehow you pull it out of the fire and you get a little bit ahead. 
literally, because I then had another fire when I left California. And I'm not an arsonist, so we should end that line of conversation. But yeah, in 1980, 1987, I always mix it up. There was a Canadian Jamboree, I think in 85, and the World Jamboree was 87. It was definitely 87. I went to the World Jamboree for Boy Scouts in Australia, and they had the equivalent of just shy of a hurricane. It was like gale force winds, and there's 15,000 Boy Scouts from around the world, essentially in a place called Wollongong, just south of Sydney. And um, I was in a big pavilion with a large pole, and it started to fall, and there were a bunch of us in there. So I grabbed it like an idiot, right, and held it up. And the wind was strong enough, it tore the tent away, at which point I realized I'm holding a pole in a storm. And so I threw it out of my hands. And at that point, the pole was hit and it arced through my hands. So I don't know how much went through me versus grounding out. But I woke up in the showers and somebody was doing CPR, which is so awful because my heart didn't stop. And I did get a lung infection that lasted, I think, two months as a result of the effect on my immune system. And, and I did lose some fingernails, strangely. But the newspapers in Canada, I don't know, do you remember this, Red? Like they reported that I was dead. Yep, I remember. And our grandmother lived in Sydney because she retired there long ago. She used to run a pub in London and retired to Sydney. She came and found me and told me my parents needed to hear from me. So we went to the local phone booth, which were these big blue boxes in Australia. And I called them and, and I said, no one's dead. And that became like a motto in our family. Because when I had my first car accident, mom and dad went away and left you and Ben with me, which was a bad move. I think I was still, what, 16, 17? Bad move. And I had a car accident and I called them and said the same thing. My mom got really mad. Yeah. So no one's dead is my motto. Yeah. But also it's another testament to, I mean, you grabbed a pole in the middle of a storm to help <laughs> others get out, right? I mean, yeah, it wasn't the yeah. brightest thing you've ever done, but it was another way to just show how... I'm still doing that, you, by the way. I mean, you care about good. other people, man. These are some crazy facts. I, uh, there was one time where you didn't. I remember you had that Fiat without floors in it. You bought real cheap, and you was like, when "Hey, they Red, had, I'll drive you to floors." I just, I took them out. I took them. Yeah, out. but you go, Red. Just don't step down. I'll drive you to school, and then just watch the road underneath rip by. And he goes, "I go, what happens if it do?" And you go, "You'll just get pulled under the car." Anyway, <laughs> that it was aside, a 1974 blue Fiat Bertone X19. It was awesome. And I, and actually, I put, it was two toned with the rust, as I remember. <laughs> it, yes, that, that, that's fair. But I put uh, sheet metal in uh, to form new floor pans. And I didn't caulk them, but I took a, a buddy of mine, uh, my best friend, one of my best friends in high school, is a guy named Kamal, took him in the car. He's like, I love what you've done with the car. It's awesome. But Fiat, the, the Bertonis ran low to the ground. And we went through a puddle, and it was like I hit him with the biggest water cannon in the world. It all just squooshed up and hit him and it was funny, but that reminded me I needed to cock the, uh, the sheet metal, yeah. I mean, it just, every one of these stories that we've been touching back on and things that we've had a conversation about today makes me think about how you've always instilled in me the to envision a world, right? We're in a constant battle to do good and to do the right thing. Tell me a bit about you, Sam, making the world a better place. What's that all about for you? I remember when I was younger saying, I will always default to doing the right thing. Now, maybe it's because I've gravitated to heroism too much in literature and gaming. Maybe it's that um, I believe that if everyone did this, the world would be a better place. And it's a bit naive of me because I know that there's givers and takers, but I never look at people as takers. I give and give and give. And if, if it doesn't work, I'll give some more. But I, I also believe that while no one needs protecting, everyone by default should expect it to some extent and should try to do it for others. Might be naive, but I can't get it out of my DNA. 
I love it. And Sam, I got to ask you two questions. These are famous sure. for this uh, particular podcast. What advice would you give anyone who's listening and wants to get into security today? A few pieces. So one is if you want to do something, no matter what you can, there is a path. Like if you didn't do well in school, you can still go and become a PhD. If you want to do cyber, you can. Like literally. The second thing I would say is lean in. Like really turn up. Woody Allen said, I think it was 90% of life is just turning up. But turn up and do the job. Do the task. Don't procrastinate. Uh, Dan Niesler does a great blog like and, and a good podcast too. But he talks about sort of a procrastination stack. And I'm probably going to get it wrong. It's worth looking it up in the original. Like, don't wait for the perfect tool. Don't wait to, for the perfect training. Nobody, I got asked the other day, have you ever been not ready for a job when you did it? And I said, almost all of them. And I, I say this to you all the time, Red, just do it. It's not fake it till you make it. Fake it till you are it. The act of faking it is actually doing it. Don't worry about Dunning-Kruger. Don't worry about the imposter syndrome. Lean in and, and tell you to yourself, why not now? Because there are reasons why maybe not, but ask the question and take the job. And the last thing I'll say is don't compare yourself to anyone, good or bad. I'm not better than anyone. I'm not worse. I'm not smarter. I'm not dumber. We're all humans. We all have equal capacity for awesomeness. So I would just hope to remind people of that. And I try to do it in deed and in word, but deed's actually more effective. Mm -hmm. Go out and pay it forward. It's funny. I, I have a a few policies I think you know about. Like if anybody pings me, I will always answer unless I'm completely swamped and that happens. I'm a beneficiary of that. Well, yeah, but you have an inside score, people might say, you know, because <laughs> we go to family stuff and because I'm your brother. But it's yeah. true. Same of everyone, right? Yeah. And so like if anyone that reaches out to me on LinkedIn, I will always accept it. And it's amazing how people don't, don't take me up on some of these things until someone says that really proves that they're just there for, cause they want to sell me something, which is silly. Cause if you build a rapport, why would you want to sell to me if you're not ever, anyway, long story, but like, I will always try and I hope others do too. And so I've, I've advised um, a number of people and I won't out them on this podcast cause I haven't asked their permission, but people come to me with startups, a few of them, and they knew who they are if they were listening. And I'll try to help them. And I don't expect money for it. And a few of them ask me, why are you doing this? And occasionally, what can I do for you? Do you want shares or money? And I'm, you know, well, I, I'll never you say no. I'll say, actually, pay it forward, right? Like, don't forget this moment when you see someone who's young or changed a profession or disadvantaged and just lean in, just do it. So that's my advice to folks. It's you can do cyber. You should do it. You should do it. Unless you, unless, it's not, unless you know it's not for you. And then just keep paying it forward. And you know, that's a message that I get from a lot of people we've worked with together. People that have asked me for advice, I send them to you. And to be honest, I have to say I got into it for that very reason. And I didn't know if I could do it. But here I am today, right? And uh, thanks to you and thanks to everybody who believed. Because there are a lot of good people out there in the world who had that same motto. But uh, I'm happy to say that you definitely pushed that hard and pushed that forward. Sammy, what books? I can't say what <laughs> I'm not going to say what book, because I know you're not just reading one. No. What books are you reading? And what book might you recommend and why? Right. So what am I reading like right now? I do have a few on the go, and I've got a few in my in as well. And some of them are just fluff, because sometimes I like to read fluff. 
there's a, a new Stephen Bruce, if you've read that, that I'm, is in my NQ. Um, big fan of Jim Butcher, but I'm reading a book on the Coast Guard right now, actually, which is kind of neat. The next book that I'm super looking forward to is Max Brooks. He did World War Z, and he just did one recommended to me by a friend of mine called Chris Taylor in marketing at Cyber Reason called Devolution, which is uh, like an eyewitness account of the genocide of Sasquatches, or if that's the plural, Yetis maybe is a better way to put it. I say that because remember, science fiction done right only has a little thing different, and it's really about today. So I'm kind of interested in where that goes because I was very impressed with World War Z. I have also recently reread a few books because I think they're kind of useful. Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. It's less about the habits for me than how to become interdependent rather than just an independent person. How do you become greater than the sum of your parts in a community? Which is super cool. Yeah, so I'm constantly reading, as you know, Red. But actually, during the pandemic, I've read less. Wow. Yeah, because normally I read on planes. And I'm a dad with a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. So I think I've been playing video games more than anything else in my spare time with them. Yeah, Scarlet's into Stardew Valley, our daughter, and my son is into uh, Mario. So, Buddy, I got to ask you, how are the kids, right? I mean, COVID-19 <laughs> video games, have you gotten good? Have you finished any good games? Yeah, so I finished Super Mario Odyssey on the Switch. And actually, hats, hats off to Kathleen, my wife, for suggesting buying it right before the stores ran out of them. We've been playing Animal Crossing, which is excellent game. Which is crazy because it's like, what are you doing? Well, I'm um, I'm growing flowers and hybrids and uh, I'm fishing uh, online. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun, and uh, it's less of the like. You know, I think I got into some pretty, I guess, adult theme games because I'm aware of that. I, I don't mean anything untoward. I mean like you know, combat and guns and stuff. And I'm like, there's something to be said for Paper Mario and for Mario Odyssey, and for Animal Crossing, and Stardew Valley. And it, it's kind of fun to see the kids doing it. And Scarlett just discovered books, by the way. So oh, that's awesome, isn't it? We're, doing a, we're, just doing, we're doing a lot of reading of her stuff. And I'm like, just get a little older. You advance your reading a bit. I have, I got a, she goes, Daddy, we have a library in the house. I'm like, yes, we do. Now, I'm not telling her that most of the recent books are all on Kindle. But yeah, I think I'm looking forward to when she starts to tackle that room in the house. That's awesome, buddy. That's awesome. All right. So I think we've come to time here. And I want to thank my guest for joining his own show <laughs> with his brother hosting it. Thanks for doing this, Red. Honestly, it's really cool. I'll have to have you on the show properly. And I'll ask you questions and try not to cover the same ground. Red on the hot seat. What is he doing now? Uh, no, this is great. Red and thank curry. you, Sam, for Red giving me this. Yeah, thank you for giving me that name and the opportunity <laughs> to host this podcast. This is really cool. I just want to let you know before we go, I'm the guy who stole all your Guns N' Roses tapes uh, when you were a young kid. Just you, you did. You I'm going to own up to that now. <laughs> yeah, you can, keep, you can keep them now. Use your illusion. Yeah. yeah, buddy. Oh, great. And thank you so much again. And I look forward to seeing you soon, buddy. Love you, bud. Love you, bud. Bye, Sammy. Bye.